Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast special. I'm Michael Goldfarb. FRDH stands for First Rough Draft of History, and at our best, that's what we journalists are doing, writing the first draft of history. But before we're journalists, we're human beings and citizens with histories of our own. And FRDH is also an attempt to write a personal draft of the times in which we have lived. President Trump's executive order of January 27th, titled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States, affected my guests today as they are all colleagues who have written the first rough draft of history, and they are all originally from countries singled out by this executive order. Nazanin Ansari is Iranian and is the longtime managing editor of Kehan London, a journal for the global Iranian community. Mina al-Arabi is Iraqi and covered the early days of the Obama administration for Ashark al-Awsat, the pan-Arab newspaper, and she is now a columnist for Ashark al-Awsat. Mustafa Karkouti is Syrian and has been reporting for various Arabic and English-language newspapers from the Middle East and London since the 1970s. He's currently a columnist for Gulf News. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being okay. invited. I'm going to read out the title of this executive order okay. one more time. <laughs> and I, you're laughing already, Mustafa. <laughs> Protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. When you first heard about this executive order, what did you think? Mina, let me start with you. So when I heard about the executive order or the travel ban, as we call it for shorthand, I was actually in the Emirates. And I had so many people emailing, messaging, saying, is this going to affect you? How does this affect you? And my immediate thought was, this actually affects me more as a British citizen than as an Iraqi. Because the fact that this targets dual nationals, it targets people who have, I mean, at first it seemed like it targets people who have, who are green card holders, targets many people who have natural ties or what they believe are natural ties to the United States. That's how I reacted to it. Because to be honest, for the poor Iraqi or Syrian or Iranian, and I'll let my um, colleagues and friends speak for themselves, for them, they're not directly affected if they're living back in their homes, because most of them don't even imagine that they could get to the United States, especially given the refugee policies that have been in place for quite some time. Nazanin? Well, my first reaction was, wow, now now I have to check, see whether I can go to the United States or not. But um, w- when I read the executive order, what, one thing that really uh, stuck out was that it will not really affect uh, those uh, Iranians uh, who are based in the United States who have been, uh, who are still working for the Iranian government, who are sympathizers for the regime, who have been, uh, you know, who who, have, who carry diplomatic passports, it won't affect them. Uh, the order will affect ordinary Iranians who travel back and forth between Iran uh, and the United States, or many who can't even go back to Iran, but are born in Iran. And in a way, um, uh, it was this kind of uh, the duality of the order that did not make sense, uh, neither to me nor to many of those uh, in the United States. Mustafa, it's really very insulting and offensive. I I was watching him on television live when he was watching President Trump. President Trump on (coughs) television 
while he was signing. And he uh, uh, proudly sort of read the title of that executive order with a smile in face and his team behind him applauding him almost. I mean, that's, I found that extremely offensive. You were talking about 200, maybe 250 million people affected by that executive order, including myself, even though I <laughs> hold a British passport because uh, I'm born in Syria. So is my wife because we got uh, a visa both, in fact, uh, uh, just a week earlier. Uh, we have a plan to travel uh, in March. Now we are in doubt. Uh, anyhow, that's the personal things. But certainly it is offensive, insulting. I think as well it is very bad for America itself. Mm. It's, it's not affecting the people concerned. It is tarnishing the face uh, and, and, and the history of America. Okay, well, let me drill, drill down deeper into that. So you had plans to travel to yes. the U.S. You yeah. got a visa. Now, yeah. you're born in Syria, but yeah. you're a British citizen. Yeah. So in a sense, you're being penalized. I mean, your citizenship now is British, and that should be good enough. But you're being penalized for being born in a country It's the wrong country now. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I have been here in the West and London since 1973, exactly. It, September 73, if you like. And that's what I call home, basically. On the 28th of January, at, on the 18th of January, we got the visa stamped on our passports. And we paid $160 each <laughs> charge for that visa. Cheap for the privilege. Come on. Well, <laughs> come on. It was, it was free uh, earlier on. Two, three years earlier, you could travel as a British passport holder on a waiver program. It's no longer the case now. It's... Now have the, they have this program called ESTA, and uh, you, you have to have an entry visa stamp on your passport. Prior to that, you have an interview as well. If they don't like the look of you, they may not give you the visa. So we got the visa on the 18th of January. 27th of January, we heard from Mr. Trump that we were banned. We were included, in fact, in, 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 in this, in this uh, executive order. Mina. One of the things that adds insult to injury is the lack of clarity. Yeah. Because some people first were saying all dual citizens can't go. Then they were retracting. Boris Johnson was standing up in parliament claiming that they had won the exception for British citizens, which for me was even more insulting because there shouldn't be an exception. The whole ban shouldn't be there. But a point of clarification the visa waiver program that citizens of the EU enjoy was changed during Obama's time. And Congress was the one that passed at the end of 2015, the law saying that the dual nationals, original citizens from Iraq and Syria, and then they added other countries, could no longer visit the US under the visa waiver program even if they hold a British passport. So I actually got my visa pre-Trump. And to be fair, we have to admit that actually some of these moves were being made. Part of it started with profiling under Bush. Part of it was actually put in law under Obama. And now Trump has made it much more blanket. So the visa waiver program, the fact that the British and European governments accepted that their citizens would be treated differently based on either country of birth or dual nationality 
is really what's reprehensible in yeah. all of this mix. Yeah, but, but a year ago, or was it about a year ago, yeah. you were preparing to go to New Haven. You were a Goldberg World Fellow at Yale. If this had happened a year ago, you wouldn't be on a plane going to New Haven, would you? Yes, because exactly, because then I can't even apply for a visa. That's the difference. So I would have had to apply for a visa, which I did. I went on a student visa because it's an exchange program. So everybody has to get one. But I wouldn't even be given the permission to apply because I'm originally Iraqi. There's just one small point I want to make. I'm actually born in Sweden. So many people said to me they wouldn't even know. And I said, I'm not going to be denying the privilege I have of being a national of both Iraq and the UK because that was a privilege I lost under Saddam Hussein. And the fact that my family got it back, I'm not giving it up to please Trump or any border official. Um, this is not the first time that, uh, uh, as Iranians, we have uh, faced uh, this kind of restrictions. Certainly, I remember during uh, when I first went to the United States, I was a student in 1977. And within a short period of time, there was the U.S. hostage crisis. And uh, for two whole years, and this was under uh, the Carter administration, uh, we weren't allowed to leave uh, the United States, and our parents obviously couldn't visit the United States. But more importantly, there were many Iranian students. There, was, there were two cases specifically who were deported back to Iran simply for jaywalking. What I see as a difference between then and now is the support that the American people are giving to uh, people from countries such as Iraq, Iran, Syria, and the other uh, four countries. Because at that time, I felt safe on campus. But as an Iranian walking outside of the campus of Mount Vernon College in Washington, DC, I wouldn't feel safe. So, really? yes, it wasn't. I mean, I, I... This was during the hostage crisis in the late 70s. It was in the late 70s. Having said that, even within, uh, during that period, I, you know, the American system was an open system in the sense that I was a student. I was able to get internships working on the Hill and working at the Democratic National Committee, still during the hostage crisis. But the, the atmosphere within uh, the U.S. population... They, they weren't very knowledgeable about... Um, Do you think they're more knowledgeable now? I think s since 1977-78, obviously, thanks to the immigration, um, let's not forget every year the United States, even, um, even when uh, during the sanctions period, it carried out, uh, it gave out uh, green cards uh, under a lottery scheme to citizens of Iran living in Iran. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, and this scheme was, I think, applied to other countries as well. The the, what I see in the United States that I first entered in 1977, and where now I, I go back, um, it is a melting pot. Um, there is more understanding about the Middle East. There is more feeling for the Middle East, for the people of the region. And there's more knowledge about what is going on there, where, whereas um, in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, it was they would still mix up Iraq with Iran. Is that your impression as well, Mustafa? Well, uh, it is in a sense <clears throat> in a few states in America, not everywhere in America, definitely. Uh, I, uh, my wife and I went to America first time, I think, 78. Uh, my wife has got an extended family. 
She's got their three sisters, two brothers, and of course their families. They've been there for the last 45 years, maybe 50 years. So they are, uh, their kids were all born there as well. So uh, uh, going back to, to the point of the entry visa we had, uh, she possibly now uh, might not be able to travel uh, to see her, her brother and sister in Washington, D.C. and in New York. Uh, it is, going back to the, to the other point, it is true in the sense that are more knowledgeable when you are talking about the metropolitan state, cosmopolitan states, like New York, Washington, D.C., uh, maybe... Uh, Terangelis. Uh, yes, <laughs> Terangelis. But I don't think in, in, in the middle, mid-America and all that, because uh, Americans, the vast majority of them, hardly travel outside their own countries. But mind yeah. you, I, I do travel in the United States, Wisconsin. I, I travel to the South. Mm. Certainly when I, in the 1978-79 when... I went, uh, because of the hostage crisis, one of my friends from college from New Orleans, the family took me in because I had nowhere to go. Yeah. Uh, at that time, they asked me, please don't say where you're from. But nowadays, when you go to New Orleans, when you go to Louisiana, there are Iranians everywhere. There, are, you know, there's, there has been so much yeah. immigration. Wisconsin. Um, so I, I disagree with you as far as no, no, knowledge and information. No, I'll tell you what. Now... A lot of Americans know or heard about Syria when I would meet America, when I go to America now, and I say originally I come from Syria. Ah, that was which Mr. Trump uh, banned you from coming to the state. This is the only connection they have with the Syria. I think we could probably have this conversation forever because it depends on your personal experiences. So I guess for me, the first time I went to the United States was in 2003, right after the start of the war. And people were, and I went to all different sorts of states and so forth. And generally there was a, a very polite curiosity, which was interesting. Um, but what's changed, I think, is that this linking with terrorism for countries yeah. where we are suffering the most from terrorism, and especially for Iraq and Syria. I mean, genuinely, we are the countries that are suffering the most from terrorism. The fact that facts no longer count, that zero, zero cases of terrorist attacks in the United States have come from nationals of the seven countries that are being targeted makes absolutely no sense. And so I think one of the frustrations is that, yes, you have some people who are suspicious um, of these countries or Muslims, let's say it out there. It is much more, I think, about Muslims than nationality. The difference, I think, with having this travel ban and linking it to terrorism and keeping the country safe is going to change people's perceptions unless there's a pushback against it, which we've seen, which has been heartening yeah. at the various airports yeah. and, and yeah. the Congress really uh, many Congress people standing up to it. I, th I think the, the, that was one of the most remarkable things about the 48 hours after this executive order was proclaimed and photographed as it was being proclaimed was this spontaneous outpouring. But again, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, he is merely fulfilling a campaign pledge yeah. to the people who voted for him. And I think that sort of supports what Mustafa was saying. I, I do think that there is this imbalance so that 
yes, there are plenty of people who, who are up in arms about it. But I've just come back from a reporting trip uh, touching base again with Trump supporters who I met last year while I was reporting on his rise. And they would be extremely happy. And they don't care, Nazanin Ansari, that you are still a stateless person. You were undone by the Iranian revolution. It's the revolution that the, the Trump administration sees as being an enemy of the United States. And here you are, you're a stateless person because of that revolution, but they don't care. You're caught in the bureaucratic yes. meat grinder. Yes, I am hunted at home and a, par a pariah <laughs> in the United States. But London but, is a wonderful place to oh, live. Oh, I love London. But um, in, uh, in confirmation of what you were saying, actually, there's a, a poll that was done by Rasmussen um, right after the executive order. And 58% of the U.S. likely voters actually supported this, uh, the Trump, uh, this executive order. And in a way, by banning it, I know on uh, Twitter, for example, they're using the hashtag Muslim ban. This is actually helping and feeding into the support, uh, supporters of Mr. Trump because uh, they're banding everybody together, whereas it is not a mu Muslim ban. If you look at it logically, there are so many countries that are not included. Saudi Arabia is not included. Morocco is not included. Indonesia, uh, Indonesia is not included. Mm -hmm. Algeria is not included. Malaysia, uh, Malaysia <laughs> is not included. So definitely, this even this hashtag is feeding into this frenzy. Mm -hmm. uh, Mustafa. No, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, the, the craziest things about the whole thing is it's really quite amateurish in a way, and it's quite surprising but you know, to see it coming from the best or maybe the, 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 uh, 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 the White House you're talking about. The White House is the most important political center uh, uh, in the world, if you like. To go down to that level and engage in these matters, you know, uh, we want to make sure that those people who come from those seven countries will not do us harm. I mean, that's crazy. In, in, in your long experience of the United States and traveling back and forth where you have in-laws and, and family living, did you ever think this would happen in the United States? Never, ever. It's, it's quite shocking, to tell you the truth. I mean, I was re even shocked uh, when I heard him talking about these things during the campaign even. But I would expect, uh, I thought at that time, now he, when he is elected, if he won the election, he will become and behave as a president, not as a campaigner. But apparently yeah, I had, I had no such thoughts. Me I no. thought he's going to believe that he you got did. to the White House because of these positions and he's going to... You know, he's going to uphold it, the pledge that he actually took for his people. So in a way, we can't criticize him for doing what he promised he'd do. No. I'd say one of the things that are striking, I mean, I never thought this would happen in the United States for various reasons. But what's really ironic is that the, the seven countries that are stated, the people of those countries or the descendants of people from those countries have suffered from these sorts of blanket decisions that cause complete confusion, that uproot people's lives. You know, we'll, we'll keep a grandfather from seeing his grandchildren or we'll stop a student from getting to where she needs to get to um, simply based on a stroke of a pen. The fact that that would happen in the United States 
shocks me because we thought that it was so much more sophisticated. But at the same time, from a policy perspective, uh, it was not done logically. It was obviously it was in a shock and awe spirit. But even before having a, a state department uh, appointee, you know, uh, by the Senate, Tillerson was just confirmed yesterday as a secretary of state. There was no secretary of state, nothing. And, and then this policy comes in, which actually begs the question, was it done as a diversionary means to take our attention away from another piece of news happening, another development. And it came two days before. Um, See, now, now we're into Middle Eastern conspiracy theories. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, it happened on a Saturday. The, the telephone call between uh, President uh, Trump and President Putin, that, it just went out of the you know, radar. No, I, 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 I'd be... Don't think so. I think this was a campaign pledge, and also my guess is it's something that he personally believes in. I, I have seen nothing. I've heard nothing. He doesn't write. I've heard nothing ever um, from the president that indicates that he has a level of sophisticated thinking. And no. you mentioned earlier, Nazanin. I just want to bring it up. How many visits? Perhaps fewer now than when I went to Tehran a decade ago. But how many visits are there between Iranian Americans and going back to see family in Tehran or wherever? There are many. Many. So I people mean, are going back and forth all the all time. All the time. There was even talk last year that there would be a direct flight between Tehran and New York. That's how many there are. I mean, after the um, agreement, after the, the nuclear agreement. Yes, yeah. after the nuclear agreement. So uh, certainly... And there's a big Iranian community in the United States. Obviously, as you mentioned yourself, Los Angeles is known as Tehrangeles. <laughs> so many of the uh, you know, Iranians uh, living in uh, Los Angeles go back and forth, and also in the East Coast. And they're the ones who are up in arms. And they cannot understand this fury of them. I mean, the point about these Iranians, um, this Iranian community is that most of them they really have pulled themselves away from politics as far as what is happening inside Iran. And therefore, you, you do have, um, as I was explaining to Mustafa, uh, one of our, our, our English language edition uh, of Kehan, we concentrate on arts and culture because it's good news. There's so many bad news going on inside Iran. But these uh, immigrants, um, they're dual nationals. They're now, uh, most of the, they're in universities. They have won so many awards. Uh, they're heads of uh, big industries like Expedia, Yahoo, the top executives of Twitter, eBay, you name it. And they're, they're within NASA, and they're all, they all fall into this band. But whereas, for example, the grandson of Mr. Khamenei, who lives in L.A., he won't be part of this man because he carries a diplomatic passport. Or um, one of the former U.S. hostage takers, she carries, uh, she's uh, currently a vice president in Iran. She carries a green card and she carries a diplomatic passport. Her son can easily go because of the diplomatic passport. And I think one of the things that's been interesting is hearing from 
Americans who are at the State Department and work in embassies and consular services, how frustrated they are. Because one, it shows that there's really no trust in their judgment, because of course there is a very strong vetting system, partly with the ESTA that was introduced for the visa waiver program and partly for giving out either visas or green cards. So this idea that first, there's no trust in, their, in, in the American system. And the second is that those people who are naturally inclined to be close to the United States are being alienated. Well, as exactly as Nazanin said, those who hold diplomatic passports and represent those countries aren't. Uh, I'd yeah. like to broaden this out and, and bring the topic of Syria in because it, it links up with Iran. Um, one of the problems in setting up a podcast like this is that, you know, hour by hour, there's some new thing that cross. I mean, I had to switch off my mobile because if I was looking at my Twitter feed, there'd be something I'd have to get into the conversation. It gets very confusing. The last thing I saw, um, you know, is the new national security head, um, Mike, General Mike Flynn, was rattling his verbal saber at the Iranian regime. Um, and I just wondered... We're talking about the sophistication of knowledge of the new administration. When America, America wants to, in some way, find a solution in Syria, Mustafa Kakuti, where Iran and Russia are working together to support the regime of Bashar al-Assad and at the moment are having success, they're suppressing uh, the revolution. And yet here's the United States coming in full bore on Iran at the same time that Iran is allied with Russia. I mean, is there any, any sense that there's knowledge at the top of the administration about the complexities of the Middle East? Well, I'm sure there is. They understand very well what's going on. And the position they are taking, they are taking it with uh, uh, full knowledge of uh, uh, the, the, what, what's happening on the ground, no doubt. They simply do not want to get involved. America is pulling out from the entire region. Uh, it's pulling out. To, uh, so you, you, your indications and, and your sources would say that, that when it comes to Syria, in a sense, it'll be the, the status quo, just as Obama just said, fine, we're not involved in this, that the, that the Trump administration feels the same way and isn't concerned about it, Syria's continued disintegration. I think Trump will will bless what's happening now in Syria, what, Trump, uh, what uh, Obama left over. Uh, uh, Trump will bless it, no doubt. And he will even talk about it uh, with Putin when they, if they ever meet, and I'm sure they will meet at, at one point this year. But I agree with you with the, with, the, with, the, with the point you made. It sounds so illogical when you have Iran involved in Syria, and not only Iran, with the help of Hezbollah militia, here you have a Lebanese militia. It's a, 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 a military arm of Iran uh, being used effectively. For the Islamic it. Republic. Uh, well, yes. okay, <laughs> by, by the regime in Iran, let's say. Thank you. And uh, very effectively, they, the Hezbollah militia, in fact, on two occasions between 20, uh, 2012 and 2014, shored up Bashar al-Assad regime and uh, prevented it from falling. And uh, Iran now, they have reportedly about seven, 70 to 80,000 revolutionary guards in Syria. And <laughs> America, of course, knows about all these things. 
Of course, they know very well what Russia is doing. And now the crazy thing is happening. It is a kind of understanding, tripartite understanding. Turkey, Russia, Iran over Syria, which probably uh, will divide Syria, not necessarily geographically, but politically, into area of influence. And America is there watching and letting everybody do whatever they want to do. I think one of the biggest puzzles when it comes to American policy under Trump towards Syria is Russia and Iran, in the sense that clearly Trump sees Russia as an ally in the region, in the Middle East, and looks upon quite fondly what Putin has been doing in Syria. At the same time, taking a very strong stance against Iran. But in reality, Russia can't do what it's doing in Syria without the Iranian support on the ground. I mean, they can provide the air power. They need the Iranian militias, whatever they are, foot soldiers on the ground. And in Iraq, they're taking a completely different stance where they see Iran, which is correct, as having a very nefarious presence and has to be pushed back. So it is still a puzzle to understand how they can square the two. I think there are people in the administration, in the new White House, who actually understand Iraq very well and don't know how to solve Syria because they're clear on wanting to push back the Iranian regime in Iraq. But then Syria is a completely different dynamic. It's yet to be clarified, but I think they are aware of those divisions. Uh, I Nazan think the way they are looking at it is that Syria is a fait accompli. And certainly from the statements uh, coming yesterday and the uh, closed briefings at the White House, it seems that the concentration will be on Yemen. Um, so maybe it is they're cutting their losses. It's a give and take. Uh, certainly uh, in Iran... Um, there are elements within, there are many circles in the Iranian Revolutionary Guards and um, uh, the regime and the government who really do not trust the Russians. Uh, they think when push comes to shove, uh, the Russians would rather be with the West than really support uh, Iran, toward, uh, the Islamic Republic regime, all the way towards the end. But at the same time, uh, while we were talking, um, uh, there is this... Um, view, um, and this was uh, uh, basically promoted and talked about by those who work for Velvet Revolutions, and specifically Gene Sharp, uh, the, book, uh, the, the book that has been followed by the democracy movements in Eastern Europe and uh, all the other uh, countries that want to bring about peaceful change, is that if you really want to bring about change, you bring about the change within the first three months of taking power. And it seems that uh, this is what uh, perhaps maybe the Trump administration is doing because it really has taken a lot of people by surprise because they thought, okay, they will come three months. It will be slowly, slowly, slowly. But the pace of these attacks against uh, Iran and uh, uh, Russia and moving forward you know, makes one wonder whether they're following the Gene Sharp model. No, I think, you see, there is no one party of those devils who are involved in Syria can really control the entire country. And none of them has got the desire to do that. We've seen the experience of Iraq and how much it costs uh, to, to, to control that country. 
the invasion, entire invasion of 2003, will not be repeated in any other country in the Middle East because all the losses, the cost, and all that. That's why nobody, especially the, especially the Russian, since they control, they are the most effective power now in Syria, since they control the skies and all that. They, 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 they are not in any mood at all to uh, invade Syria and take over, nor the Iran either, nor Turkey for this matter. Nobody is. All what they want to do, they want to create an influence of some sort, as they have done so far, because the time will come at one point. We don't know when. Till now, we don't know when. In a year, two, five, ten, that uh, regional and international power, there would be some sort of international conference to sort out this mess as they did uh, after the First World War and after the Second World War, like Sykes-Picot, mm. for example. So uh, I think everybody wants to have their feet there for this time to come and then decide okay. uh, over their, their part I'm going to bring cake. Mina Alorevi back in, and then I want to get back to the subject of how this knocks on into being banned from going into the U.S., well, I want, to, I want to bring it back to the Trump administration, so hopefully I'll give you that segue. Because what's interesting, Mustafa, is you raise, of course, after World War I and World War II, but you had the different type of America now. Yeah. So this isn't Woodrow Wilson and the principles coming out. This is not going to be an America that thinks of the world and thinks of itself as a leader in the world. This is the America first administration. And I think it leaves many people concerned that whatever is decided, for example, for Syria, it's not going to have the Americans at least projecting the idea that they care about what happens to the people, even if in reality... Realpolitik, often that doesn't happen, but at least they can show some sort of interest of what happens for the people. The travel ban is an indication, in addition to all the other indicators we've had, is that this is an administration that does not feel responsible for the fates of ordinary people who happen to get in the way. But unlearning the habit of regarding America as the refuge, the sanctuary place, because even in the 1930s, when, when as we... we learn after we graduate high school and begin to look at American history more realistically. You know, it was a close-run thing. The America First movement was popular. Charles Lindbergh was a phenomenally popular figure. Philip Roth's book is a good book because it, it, it plays with that reality. It could have, you know, America could have slid this way towards fascism. Same way UK, Britain could have slid this way towards fascism. And yet here, I, I'm going to guess, I have, I I was in Kurdistan 18 months ago, but since I haven't been back in the Middle East. And I'm going to guess that for many people sitting in refugee camps in Jordan, sitting in refugee camps, you know, in barbed wire in Turkey, and to have some knowledge of the world, they are still thinking, if I can just get to America, America is the refuge. Or do you think that's changed now? I think America has not been uh, in the refugee mind or immigrant mind as the refuge, it has been the land of opportunity. And that is one thing that at the moment, uh, you know, basically immigrants would still want to go to America and if they are there because it is, it's a better life. But a refuge wouldn't be America. I wouldn't say so. A refuge would be in Europe. 
I agree. I, I, mean, I agree. I, I agree too. I think what the in this particular case, what the Syrian refugee wants to do, mm-hmm. you mentioned those million and a half Jordan, million and a half in Lebanon, million and a half in, in Turkey, and you have internally about nine million people who have simply moved from one place to another. They are looking at America as not necessarily a place as a refuge to go to. They are looking at America to take action on the world stage to help out those miserable people. Half a million people were killed so far, according to the United Nations, in Syria alone. Uh, uh, Most of the victims were killed by the regime, Russia, Hezbollah, and Iranian Revolutionary Council, the vast majority uh, of them. So the people there are always questioning. That's the things I hear from my own own, uh, relatives as well. Some of them, by the way, are refugees as well. And uh, one of them has disappeared. My, My wife's brother has been kidnapped, I think. We don't know where he is. Uh, three years ago, and two distant cousins of mine as well uh, were uh, young people. Nobody knows where they are. So uh, people are looking at America to move, take action, do something about the situation in Syria, not necessarily looking at it as a place of refuge to travel to. But I think there's also a concern that what America does sets the tone for what others will do. And for many people looking to Europe as a place of refuge. I think especially after what Angela Merkel did in terms of opening up Germany and then having to retract. There's a lot of concern that the voting in of Trump sets a tone for if the right comes in to Europe and we have the elections in the Netherlands and France and in Germany. There's a lot of concern that he starts to set a tone that this is acceptable. It is morally acceptable that this is what you do when you have leadership inside your country to close up the borders and push back against those very people who need your help. So in that in that respect, I mean, this executive order, which, you know, it's an it's an order. It, it carries a certain amount of force. But at one level, it's it's just a memorandum and it's good for 90 days. And you know, the vetting process, you, you've all been through it. You know that it's been going on for a couple of years. And a lot of these people trapped at the airports had passed some pretty stringent Investigation. So now, I mean, it's a bleak thought to think that other governments in Europe might begin, prime ministers might begin to think, well, we're we're just going to shut everything down for 90 days. Uh, Mind you, Australia started this kind of uh, treatment of uh, immigrants a long time ago and uh, created detention centers. Mm. So what happened in America is not the first time. And as far as the Iranians are concerned, you know, even... uh, for example, my um, you know father and my parents, uh, because of the new re- visa regulations within Europe, within Schengen area, within Britain, Iranians we Iranians have been used to this. So, but hopefully, hopefully, uh, the pain uh, will not become worse than what it has been. You see, Michael, to go back to your point. I think the danger of Trump and those memorandum, which they are effective no doubt about it, that they uh, uh, they travel fast to Europe, and they are traveling fast. Now, the European rights uh, and extreme rights they are saying simply, if it's happening in America, why not here? And this is extremely dangerous because 
not only the rise, this would lead to the, lead to the rise of fascism and all that, might also, in fact, uh, uh, happen in America itself. Would it lead to some sort of a civil, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it civil war in America, but civil confrontation, uh, riotings, uh, split the society between uh, morally uh, radical, if you like, and really extreme right wing. There are some signs of that. It might happen in America, but it is dangerous that it would happen in Europe first. And because Europe, there are already refugees. You have millions of them. And if the political scene in Europe changes drastically to that, in that, down this route, God knows what's going to happen. You all are giving me a new sense of what America first could mean. The America... What America does still leads, even when it's withdrawing from the world, which isn't necessarily a happy thought. Um, we're, we're, going, we're coming to the end of, of this conversation, and what I'd like to do is you all come from countries that have been through titanic upheavals. You've lived through them. Um, and I wonder if you have any advice for Americans who feel, you know, Mustafa, uh, look, I've just come back, and, and this society is as split as I can remember in my lifetime, and I'm so ancient, I can remember what it was like to be a student in 1968. And at least then, there was a real external thing to argue about, which was the war in Vietnam. There were half a million soldiers in, in a small country. There was a draft that we all, as men, faced. And, you know, that's where the argument was, and also finally giving African-Americans their full rights, and they were externally real political arguments. These arguments almost seem to be coming out of the ether, yeah. out of people's wildest imaginations, kind of paranoia. So here we are on, on the edge. The country is yeah, on yeah. the edge. Uh, and I wonder, what advice would you give to Americans? I mean, your societies have all been through this. How, how should a citizen behave? Jump well, in. Nazanin, go ahead. I mean, there's a fundamental difference between the United States and the Islamic Republic of Iran. And it's the free elections. In a democracy, change happens. It doesn't mean that all change is good, but change happens peacefully. And I think one, uh, uh, I was telling my friends uh, who are American, Iranian, and are very depressed, that count your lucky stars because you're in the United States. In four years' time, you'll have another chance at taking, going to the, elect, uh, to the polls and voting. But in Iran, we are stuck with what we have, <laughs> whereas it's the rule by divine right of the Ayatollahs. Mina. I would say, yes, I agree, Nazanin, that it is in the United States you do have elections, but things can change in terms of how you manipulate the situation until you get to elections. So my advice would be threefold. One, do not take for granted what you have in the United States True. because you can lose it very quickly. Two, societies can be torn apart very quickly. Iraqi society was not where we find it today. That happens due to decisions that are done at the stroke of a pen, and then the ramifications are felt for a long time. So protect your societies. And third, 
leading on from that, civil society counts. So those movements that are happening now, those demonstrations can't be a one-off demonstration. They have to be a movement to really uphold what you value and what are the values of your country. Because yes, it is just an executive order, but then how it's implemented and the tone it sets for people and what they find acceptable in terms of either racism or actually pushing back against people because of their identity is very worrying. So protect your civil society and be active. Mustafa. I think I would go along with that, but I would add one thing. I think the Americans should be aware of Trump's danger. He is a very dangerous man, and don't be fooled by him. Uh, of course, he was elected uh, constitutionally and all that things, no doubt about it. And thank God, thank God he's only there for four years' term, maybe renewed later on for another term, but at least there will be an end uh, for that. Uh, but the, at, at the present moment, he is dangerous not only uh, uh, for the American, but also to Europe and for the rest of the world, no doubt. Uh, his policies are divisive, and they are uh, uh, based on hate, and uh, simply, you know, inciting people to fight each other because that's the way I see it. He is, I mean, you know, the, 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 the fact, the slogan he has raised during the election campaign and still holding it up, that we want to keep our country safe. This in itself put people on their toes as if, the enemy is really at your front door. The enemy is not at your front door. The enemy is in the White House. Well, that's very strong. Um, let me ask all of you, we have just enough time to go around the table and tell me honestly, in 90 days' time, you've got visas, you can get visas, you have long contacts with the United States. Are you happy to go back? Mina al Oraibi. I'm not happy to go back, but I want to go back because there is so much about the U.S. that I love. And so I won't be happy because I feel I'm being singled out. And I'll just add one final thought. The idea that we are all, the three of us sitting here in the studio, are guilty until we prove our innocence breaks my heart. Nazanin, I'm uh, sorry. I'm planning to go ba uh, back to the United States in two weeks, two, three weeks. So hopefully I'll be allowed in. Well, Mustafa. certainly I would love to go on the personal level, just for family reason, but on the professional reason, just to live through sometimes uh, du uh, during uh, Trump's era, at least this might help me understand a bit, what's understand more what's going on. Thank you. Thank you, Mustafa Karkouti, Syrian journalist, Nazanin Ansari, Iranian journalist, and Mina Al-Orebi, Iraqi journalist. Thank you for uh, taking part in this conversation and for being so open. And thank you for listening to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. And you can hear lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, or find us on the usual distribution platforms. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, please tell at least 10 of your friends, and then tell them to tell 10 of their friends, and make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.